We are studying the life of Christ this summer. And I am very excited about this study. We talked about the baptism last week of Jesus. Uh, him going into the water to represent his mission is to bring life and forgiveness and cleansing to this world. And as he came out of the water at his baptism, it represents that he is bringing new life to this world. Today, it turns from the life-giving baptism of Matthew 3 to a very ominous encounter with the devil in Matthew chapter 4. This is the temptation of Jesus Christ. This is the temptation that could, at least in theory, have derailed his mission to give his life as a sacrifice, to live as a suffering servant, and have him pursue the things that all of humankind pursues. We pursue possessions, we pursue fame, we pursue our appetites. All those temptations came Jesus' way at the 40th day of his fasting. He was fasting for 40 days. And fasting for 40 days brings you literally to the brink of death. As your cells begin to degenerate, fat reserves are depleted, your body begins to eat its own muscle tissues, the immune system fails, the body gets to the end of its ability to consume itself, weight is dangerously low, infections set in, edema, enlarged liver, and heart failure take a person's life who hasn't had food between roughly 42 days and 70 days. Jesus fasted for 40 days, weak and vulnerable, and there he, he, he has an encounter with the devil himself. Upon his baptism, Jesus received his mission to become the savior of the world. And the first battle to test the strength of the Savior begins in the vast and dangerous desert deep in the heart of the Middle East. This great battle is orchestrated by God the Father to crush the darkness that keeps the world enslaved by pride, greed, and hate. This battle will be won in the desperate isolation of the wilderness. This battle will be won in the desperate hunger of a 40-day fast. And this battle will be won by the desperate love of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Jesus is led by the Spirit of God to be tested in every worldly temptation. As the great and powerful enemy, the Prince of Darkness, encounters Jesus, who is quite literally starving to death. The enemy first offers Jesus bread, a quick and easy satisfaction to a profound hunger, a temptation to be full, to live for his own satisfaction and enjoyment, to live without need, a temptation to avoid his mission, to live and die as a suffering servant. Jesus resists the temptation. The enemy then offers Jesus glory through an extraordinary work of magic, a great angelic rescue, relieving him of the risk of being the savior of the world, a temptation to be immediately glorified, to be exalted to the highest earthly stature, to shortcut God's plan of victory through struggle, and to live for his own well-being, to avoid his mission to live and die as a suffering servant. Jesus resists the temptation. 
Finally, the enemy offers Jesus wealth beyond imagination. The wealth of the entire world could be his if he would simply abandon his calling to save others and to live in the self-absorbed luxury that everyone dreams of. To avoid his mission to live and die as a suffering servant. Jesus resists the temptation. Every temptation was designed to distract Jesus from his calling as the savior of the world. If he would simply live for himself, as most people do, he could be satisfied, he could be glorified, and he could be wealthy. But Jesus emerges utterly victorious, denying every temptation, crushing the work of the great enemy. This was a great triumph over darkness, allowing the light of Jesus to shine unobstructed, not only illuminating the love of God in Judea 2,000 years ago, but blazing out the selfless, sacrificial love of God in every corner of the world today. Matthew chapter 3 is the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. And there could be no greater stark contrast than that. Jesus was baptized in the refreshment of a river, then immediately is led to the harshness of the desert. In the river at his baptism, the Spirit descends on him. In the desert, the devil arrives. He was built up in the river and torn apart in the desert. The voice of the Father was affirming in the river. The voice of the devil was condemning in the desert. There is beauty in the baptism and ugliness in the desert. The temptation really is a powerful story. And if you read right through the Gospel of Matthew in particular, those early chapters are setting up this dramatic confrontation in the desert between the Son of God and the Prince of Darkness. This is a spiritual war between the Lord of Light and the one who is the ruler of the power of the air. And the way the story is narrated the victor of that battle will emerge as nothing less than the ruler of all the earth, the spiritual ruler of all the earth. So we're going to look at three things today in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Who are these two in the desert? What happened there specifically, and why does it matter to us? So who are these two? We know about Jesus. We talk about him, you know, quite a bit around here. He's the one that represents the fullness of God, the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, all goodness and grace and kindness and mercy, forgiveness and love that God is pouring out freely to this world. He's the one and only son, the only begotten son who eternally and directly proceeds from the heavenly father. He's the only one who is the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity, the incarnate God. He's the one who's the full expression of God the father. Jesus says, you have seen me, you have seen the father. He is the one who's called by the Father to be the Savior of the world, to bring the whole world under the love and grace of God, and to enjoy this unbroken and unbreakable relationship purely by his grace. That's Jesus. The other side of this battle is the devil. The devil. Devil is a spiritual being. The devil is not incarnate. So don't get the impression, as the video kind of implied, that Jesus is the incarnate son and the devil becomes incarnate and they're kind of man to man. This temptation is happening in the heart and the mind of Jesus, who is literally starving to death, who was just called the son of God. He was just given his job description to be the savior of the world. And now all that is being tested in the wilderness. It is a battle of the mind. It's the battle of the heart. It's a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle is, is, is attempting to pull Jesus away from his mission to be the suffering servant, 
to live his life in suffering, to live his life in generosity, to live his life in a selfless way, to bear the suffering and the sin and the shame of the world upon himself. The temptations try to draw him away from that mission. And the enemy, the devil, is the one assigned to do it. Now, in the Bible, the devil is the name of a spiritual being or spiritual reality that represents all that stands against the kingdom of heaven. The devil has several names and several job descriptions. I'll just give you a few of them. He is called the deceiver, and this is his primary role is to deceive. Lies are where his power comes from. He has no real intrinsic power. His power is in deception. He is called the accuser, Revelation 12, 7 through 12. He is um, out to accuse believers. So those of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ, we've received his forgiveness. The accuser is the one who pours in um, these reminders of our sin and our failure. And, and really, God doesn't love you. How can he look at you? He's the accuser, pulling us away from the love of God. He is the purveyor of persecution. He is the one who is attacking the church. In fact, if you read most of the references, particularly in the New Testament, the devil is about attacking the church through persecution. The church is the greatest enemy of the devil. The church is the greatest enemy of the devil because the church is the body of Christ. The church, we are the continuing ministry of Christ. As we say here, advancing the cause of Christ, advancing the kingdom of heaven, advancing love. And so persecuting the church is, uh, is, is his, his specialty. He's also the uh, peddler of religion. Uh, we talk about this a lot. It's all over the scripture. Whether it's re referred to as, as sorcery in the Bible, there's all kinds of these spiritual systems that are developed essentially from the power of the enemy, from the power of the devil, religions are formed to lie to people and to say, hey, you're separated from God. You need to believe these right things and do these right things and be moral and be pure in order to earn favor with God, in order to earn his love, in order to earn eternal life. All religion is a, a wall between man and God built by the enemy, the devil. That has to be done away with, 2 Corinthians 11.4. And then the devil is the sower of division. Um, again, attacking the church, Romans 16, 17 through 20. A unified church is a strong church, boldly advancing the cause of Christ. If he can chip away at the church through persecution, through division, and through religion, getting religion kind of infused in the life of a church, now, religion, now, now the church loses its power entirely. It's fighting each other, it's judging each other, and battling for survival. This is what the enemy does. Now, here's the interesting part about this temptation in the wilderness. The temptation in the wilderness was orchestrated by God. God put this together. In fact, it's very clear in Matthew 4, chapter 1, that right after the baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God says, Jesus, desert, 40-day fast, devil, desert, you two are going to meet. You two are going to meet. The first thing that God does after declaring Jesus the Son of God is he puts the Son of God to the test. First by starvation, 40 days of fasting. And then when he's at his weakest, he comes face to face with the enemy, the devil, to test every bit of his calling as the son of God and the savior of the world. God put this together. Now that might surprise us. Why would God put a temptation together? It doesn't seem like that's something God would do. Uh, isn't the devil kind of the sneaky prowler, right? The one who's behind the corner and behind the bush, and he's going to kind of sneak up and surprise attack. That's not exactly what's going on. In fact, there's a lot of misconceptions about the devil. Um, ever since the 1970s, uh, there's been a little obsession with spiritual warfare, and it just kind of 
you know, took off and it comes in waves, it kind of ebbs and flows. But spiritual warfare are systems that are built around a very few number of scriptures. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about the spiritual realm, the devil, demons, things like that. So as a result, I don't know a lot. But there are people who do know a lot because they make up a lot. They take a couple of passages and then pile a whole other religious spiritual system on it, and you end up with kind of spiritual warfare systems. Uh, I don't play in that playground uh, because there are just a few scriptures that we want to pull the truth from uh, without all of these spiritual warfare systems. So we make a lot of mistakes, I think, when it comes to spiritual warfare, particularly the work of the devil. We might think that the devil is a um, co-sovereign over evil. That's sort of how people perceive the devil. God's the God of good. The devil's the God of evil. It makes the devil a co-sovereign, as though there's, you know, some battle where there's some possibility that the devil could win. That's not true. He's not a co-sovereign. He's not a sovereign over anything. We might think that the devil is the cause of all that is bad in this world. If something bad happens, well, the devil did that. You know, that's not exactly what the Scripture says. Uh, Humankind makes a, a lot of things wrong on our own without a lot of help. We might think that the devil operates with free will, that the devil can do anything he wants. That is not true. Most famously in Job, the devil comes to God and says, hey, I want to persecute that guy. He has to ask for permission, right? And uh, Job's kind of this epic tale, but there's broader things that you can pull from that. Here in the temptation, God brought the devil and Jesus together. The devil is subservient to God. He's not a co-sovereign. He's not a co-sovereign. We might think that the devil is the source of all temptation, Uh, We get a chance to walk with a lot of people around here in great success. We also get a chance to walk with a lot of people through great failure. And one of the things that people say a lot when they fail is, boy, the devil really got me. It's like, well, first of all, you're not that big a deal for the devil to come after you. Let's just establish that. (laughs) Secondly, uh, the Bible's very clear about where temptation comes from. James chapter 1, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. We have our own evil desires. Nobody's got to put that in us. Nobody's got to, you know, insert that. We have them, right? Uh, we, we are driven by drives, lusts, appetites, emotion. We've got that in us. And, and when those drives uh, pull at us and when we succumb to them, we don't need the devil to get us tempted. We just do it, right? Um, and then what happens, James 1.15, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. There's destruction in sin. Sin comes from succumbing to temptations from ourselves, from ourselves. Um, Let me put it this way. The temptation of Jesus is not really a template for what many call spiritual warfare. Some people look at the temptation of Jesus and say, ah, well, the devil is after Jesus like this. The devil's after me like that. I just don't think so. Um, Again, I don't think we're a big enough deal to be attacked by the devil. The devil is not a co-sovereign. The devil is not omnipotent. The devil is not omniscient. Uh, One being, spiritual being, one place, one time. I'm pretty sure he didn't wake up Sunday morning, June, whatever it is, and say I'm going after Scott Treadway. So this is not a a template for how we are tempted. It's a one-time event that God orchestrated to set a trajectory of defeat for all that stands against the love of God. That's why the temptation took place. That's why God put it together. God put a scenario together where Jesus is at his weakest and temptation is at its strongest to test the Son of God in his mission, and Jesus comes out as it was always going to come out. He comes out the victor, and he leaves his very first encounter after his baptism to defeat the devil. After the temptation, the Son of God's on a trajectory for guaranteed victory. The enemy's on a trajectory for guaranteed defeat. 
That's Jesus and the devil. So what happened? Three temptations happened. First temptation was this. The enemy says, Jesus, you're starving to death. Turn stone to bread and be satisfied by appetite. This is one of the human nature drives that really pull us into some terrible darkness. Our appetites, our drives, our lusts, our, our, our emotions just uh, fully given into will create chaos. Jesus, of course, is starving to death. The very you know, key, basic uh, drive is, is to survive, right? Even that is at risk. Turn stone to bread, right? Rely on bread. And Jesus says, I will not. I'll live only by the word of God. Uh, the second temptation is this. Jesus, perform a great miracle and be satisfied by fame. Throw yourself down, the devil says, off of this high pinnacle and the angels will lift you up. You will have fame. You will have glory. And Jesus resists that temptation. Temptation three uh, is, is this. Jesus, turn from your mission to save others and be satisfied by possessions and comfort. I'll give you all the world's kingdoms and all the world's possessions. Now, we look at that victory and we think, okay, well, that's, that's, that's very cool. But there's something more going on than just the encounter between Jesus and the devil. The encounter between Jesus and the devil is a little microcosm of the big narrative of what's happening with humankind, our struggle with sin and evil and self selfishness and materialism and injustice and our relationship with God in that broken world. So I'm going to just give you a couple, three minutes of some uh, just theological um, connecting of the dots. Hang with me here. I think a lot will, you know, kind of shine in your eyes here uh, that will be helpful to you. Get this. The baptism and temptation of Jesus reverses the story of humankind as represented by the story of Adam and Eve. How in the world does the temptation uh, relate with Adam and Eve? Well, let's understand. Adam and Eve is the story of mankind. It's not really the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve are the names of man and woman. It's the story of all of humankind. Adam and Eve are in paradise, and they are tempted, right? They're tempted by the enemy, and they're tempted with food, which represents all of human appetites. They're tempted with, with knowing all that God knows and, and having the power of God. All the same temptations that happened to Jesus happened first in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's the whole meta narrative story of what happens with humankind. They failed and were expelled from paradise into the desert. The temptation of Jesus begins in a broken world in the desert. And the same temptation comes to Jesus. Let me put it to you this way. Giving into temptation, Adam is cast out of paradise, leading the world into the desert, whereas Christ resists temptation in the desert to lead us back to paradise. The temptation of Jesus reverses the curse of Adam and Eve in the garden. Isn't that kind of cool when those dots come together? Similarly, the baptism and temptation of Jesus reverses the story of humankind represented by the people of Israel. Keep in mind, the people of Israel were escaping slavery, escaping Egypt. They're essentially baptized through the Red Sea and spend 40 years in the desert. While they were in the desert, they were facing the same temptations of food, and they were grumbling, we don't have food and we don't have water. They wanted to be a great nation, right? They wanted the blessing of God. They wanted the power of a great nation. They failed in all of the same temptations in the desert. Jesus spends 40 days in the same desert the Jews spent 40 years in and faces the same temptations and comes out the victor. And when Jesus emerges from that desert, the victor, he's reversing the, ten, the, the, the temptation of Adam and Eve, reversing the temptation and failures of the people of Israel, and he's setting all of humankind on a brand new trajectory of victory. 
When Jesus walks out of the desert, he, would, he establishes that he will not abandon his call to be a suffering savior by chasing appetites. He's essentially saying the son of God is not going to chase appetites and derail God's plan. But not only that, the world itself doesn't have to keep chasing appetites and lusts and desires and give in to every you know, emotion of, of rage or whatever it is. We can, can, can be under God's authority. There's a new life ahead, a life of victory. Also in the desert, Jesus made it certain that he would not abandon his call to be the suffering servant by chasing glory and fame. Jesus was very comfortable being out of the limelight. In fact, when there were too many crowds and he got too famous, he left that because he knew his role was not to be exalted, but to be a suffering servant. As Jesus emerges from the desert, it was established that he would not abandon his call to be the suffering servant by chasing possessions and comfort. He would not do that. He wasn't living for himself, his lifestyle, his money, his comfort. He was giving his life away to live for the betterment of others. He emerged from that desert as the victorious son of God. So what does that mean to us today? If the temptation of Jesus isn't really a template for us being tempted by the devil, again, you know, we're not Jesus, we're not that big a deal. Devil's probably not coming after us today. We're driven and tempted by our own desires. So if that temptation is not a model for us, what does it mean to us and why does it matter? Well, it means everything. It means everything because Jesus left the desert as the victor. He won. He's not winning. He already won. When he met the devil head on in his weakest spot, facing the strongest temptation, it was an easy defeat. In fact, there was no chance the devil was going to win. He was put there by God to fail. And Jesus was put there by God to win. Jesus is the Christus victor. And I want you to kind of put that in your brain. The Christus victor, the Christ, the Savior who is victorious. That's why he went to the desert. And that's why he went to the cross. He went to the desert to suffer at the beginning of his ministry to prepare him to go to the cross at the end of his ministry. He would lay everything down for the glory of God and the benefit of others. He would sacrifice it all, including his own life, to take the suffering, the sin, the shame of the world upon himself and die for it once and for all. And not to just emerge from the desert as the victor, but to emerge from the cross as the victor. So as he walks out of the desert in victory, he walked out of the grave in victory. He is Christus victor, Christ the victor. And the word of God, particularly in the New Testament, just screams out the victory of Christ. I love this in Hebrews. Jesus experienced the same things, the same trials and struggles and tribulations and temptations that we do. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The devil is destroyed. Get that? Devil destroyed. No power. Done. Defeated. And, and he came to deliver those um, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are delivered, delivered. Colossians 2.15, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authority, the spiritual powers. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The devil is defeated. All spiritual rulers and authority are defeated. Jesus is the Christus victor. He's the Christus victor. Another thing to consider is that the devil can't really do anything. The devil can't do anything. He not only has no power, but he can't do anything. Uh, did he turn stone to bread and say, hey, Jesus, eat this? Jesus said, uh, I, I can't do anything. You make stone to bread. And Jesus says, no, thanks. I'm good. Did the devil offer to rescue Jesus himself? No, he can't do anything. Angels will do it. Just jump yourself off. He's just a deceiver. He can't do anything. He has no power, can't do anything. 
The devil really couldn't even give Jesus the riches of the world. He said he could. I'll give you the riches of the world and the kingdoms of the world. The Bible's very clear the devil doesn't own anything. Daniel 4, 32 says all the kingdoms of the world belong to God. He is powerless, defeated, and can't do anything. That's the devil. Jesus isn't winning. He won. All the darkness can do is lie. And there are, there, there's great power in lies, great power in lies. But that's all the enemy, that's all darkness can do. The darkness will lie and tell you in your head and in your heart that there's spiritual battles out there. There's, a, there's this big drama that is, that is taking place in the heavens and, and you know, there are demons after you and the devil's after you and you've got to pray certain ways and you've got to claim certain things and you've got to live a certain way and then we'll defeat the, the enemy out there by all of our good religious activity, right? That gives the devil so much credit. It, it basically tells him how powerful he is and how powerless God is. This whole spiritual warfare, you know, thing is, a, is high drama. It makes for some, you know, I guess halfway poor movies or books, but it really doesn't represent the truth of Christus Victor. Christus Victor is kind of boring. Jesus won. It's over. There's some cleanup operations, right? The kingdom of heaven isn't yet fully established on the earth, but it's getting there. We just keep loving and loving. We keep being gracious and kind. We keep speaking of the grace of God. Christus Victor, it's over. The darkness will lie in our head and in our heart and tell us that we could be overcome by darkness, that whatever you're dealing with in terms of circumstances or temptations or addictions or struggles, uh, fears, emotion, that you're going to be swallowed up. And so many people live in fear of being swallowed up by life circumstances or by emotions. We're not living in the victory of Christ. And I know that sounds kind of nebulous, so let me just put a tiny bit of a fine point of it. If you are struggling emotionally, you're struggling with loss, you're struggling with health problems, you are struggling with um, uh, uh, failure, temptations, whatever you feel is dragging you down, you feel a weight that's dragging you down, there is an enemy that is saying, yes, you're going to get dragged down. You're going to get dragged down. Keep fearing Keep fearing. You're getting pulled down. Keep being afraid. Keep thinking that you're not going to overcome this. That is the enemy lying, lying, lying. There's victory in Christ. Christus victory. Shoulders back, head up. I'm with Jesus. I'm with the Christus victor. I'm going to get in relationship with people who follow Jesus. I'm going to be honest with people. I'm going to, whether it's joining a group or being a friend uh, with somebody, and I'm going to tell them my struggles. I'm going to join Celebrate Recovery, right? I'm going to join a support group. I'm going to tell people what's going on in my life. And I'm telling you, that's where victory comes because Christ will minister to us by one another. We're the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is right here for you. Look around. This is Jesus here for you. We're the body of Christ. He's in us. We just got to trust his comfort and his care and his victory as we walk relationally together towards victory over anything that stands against us. The darkness will lie and tell you in your head and in your heart that you're not good enough for God. How can God possibly love you? Look at how you live. How can God possibly love you? You're struggling with doubts. How can God possibly love you? You failed so much, you're not devoted, you're not religious, you're not moral, whatever the list is. That's a lie from the accuser telling you that your standing with God is about you, and it's not. Our standing with God is about him, 
his love, his grace, what he did for us through Jesus Christ to completely remove every sin, every failure, past, present, and future. And he wants to scream from the mountaintops, he loves you just as you are unconditionally. And when we embrace that love and just kind of repel the lies of the enemy that we're somehow separate from God because we're not good enough, if we can just rely on the love of God through Jesus Christ, we are going to well up in love and confidence and grace and then watch our life transform because it's transformed by love. We are with Christ, the Christus Victor. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great mercy through Christ. Thank you that he is the son of God emerging from the baptism waters as the son of God with a mission to be the suffering servant, to repel the temptation of appetites, drives, and desires, to repel the temptation of fame and glory, to repel the temptation of uh, power, prosperity, and luxury. And he was focused on his mission to give his life, to give his life to help people in need, give his life to, to preach and teach that you're a heavenly father who loves and to give his life on a cross to bear the suffering, sin, shame, and temptations of the world upon himself, to pay the price for him. And as he walked out of the desert victorious, he walks out of the grave victorious, defeating temptation, defeating sin, defeating even death, defeating the devil. He is destroyed. He is not winning. He has won. Help us to live in that victory. We are with the Christus victor. There is nothing that can swallow us up. There is nothing we need to fear. We do not need to fear the devil. We do not need to fear demons. We do not need to fear being separate from you. We do not need to fear being condemned by you. We do not need to fear death. We do not need to fear condemnation. We do not need to fear hell. God, we are with Christus Victor. In his name we pray. Amen.